We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you big science from the small island, Tasmania. We're proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Go to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what they're up to. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Kelsey Pickard and our expert guest, Laura Rood. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. But I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge and respect the traditional owners wherever you are listening from. I pay my respects to elders past and present and stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history as an integral part of our progression moving forward. So Kelsey, what are we going to be talking about today? I think it's going to be a pretty interesting episode. This week's episode is looking into the science behind meat spoilage and specifically how to improve the shelf life of meat products. Um, I'm going to start this episode by um, introducing a content warning. So this episode talks about animal slaughter. Our guest this week is PhD student Laura Rood, who is a student at the University of Tasmania's Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture, or TIA, in Hobart. Welcome, Laura. Before we get started, we'd love to hear a bit about yourself and how you got into science. Thank you. Um, so I started my undergrad at the University of Tasmania. Um, I was doing zoology and plant science. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed those subjects. They're very interesting. Um, and then as I was getting into my third year, I started to get really interested in industry work and industry science, more applied science. Um, and I was doing a subject, uh, I think it was a, some kind of biotechnology subject, um, and one of my lecturers um, asked what I was doing, what I wanted to do after my undergrad, and I, I had no idea, and, he, um, and I just said that, yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in applied science, like I'm progressing further in that, and yeah, he told me about a project that he was doing that was in malting and brewing microbiology um, and so I did that so I was looking my project was controlling microbes on barley grain because the malting process can actually um, promote the growth of bad bacteria so I was looking at um, different antimicrobials that could potentially like reduce the microbial loading to help with downstream issues um, and from there I was offered a PhD in meat spoilage, so microbiology of meat. So you've moved from microbiology of barley grains to microbiology of meat. Yeah. Um, so that was just an opportunity that came up and you thought the project sounded interesting? Yeah, um, I wanted to continue on with the barley research, um, but there wasn't a lot of funding at the time. And so the, um, the meat projects, very well funded, um, and so I thought, yeah, that's a good way to go. <laughs> and can you tell us a bit about your PhD project and what you're working on? Yeah, so I'm um, looking at microbial spoilage of um, vacuum packaged lamb. Um, so the reason why I'm looking at lamb is because it has half the shelf life compared to beef. So for export, um, we cryvac 
our meat, we then store it at about zero to minus one throughout the supply chain. Um, and under those conditions, lamb has a shelf life of about 12 weeks, whereas beef has a shelf life of 26 weeks. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a huge difference. Wow, that's huge. I never considered yeah. that that's the shelf life of an animal product before. I don't know why, but it grosses me out even though I eat meat. Um, what does it mean to cryvac something? Uh, so vacuum pack. So the meat gets put into a pack, um, yeah, just a pack, um, and then the air is um, sucked out of the pack and then it's sealed. So it's like a tight seal around the meat. And so even without this well, low oxygen or no oxygen environment, you're still getting spoilage on the meat? Yes, yep. So there's still a microbial community, but you're selecting for lactic acid bacteria and you're altering the microbial community. Um, so you get a longer shelf life. Whereas if you had it um, in air conditions, um, you would get spoilage of pseudomonas and other bacteria, which um, are high spoilers high potential spoilers. So the bacteria that live in high oxygen or normal oxygen environments spoil meat much faster, yes. but the ones that don't need the oxygen still spoil the meat, but it takes longer. Yes. Okay. And why does meat go bad? And is there anything specific about sheep meat compared to other meat that causes it to go bad faster? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'll answer your first question, which is why does meat go bad um well so meat is highly nutritious it has you know a good water activity for for bacteria um so you know it's fresh food so you're obviously going to get bacterial growth um no matter how sterile the conditions are during slaughter um and at the abattoirs you're still going to get you know bacteria on the meat um because it's um as the animals come into the facilities, you know, they've got covered in dirt, um, you know, when their their organs are taken out, like that's, yeah, there's a lot of bacteria involved in the insides of animals. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you're going to get a microbial community. Um, and so over time, um, it's the, their growth and their metabolites. So that means... The, as they consume the nutrients on the meat, it's the um, byproducts of, of that that's, that accumulate and then cause bad smells and slime and discoloration. Even in perfectly sterile conditions, wouldn't meat have its own microbial community anyway because we all have microbes living on us? Or is that not? Does that not happen so in like actual deep tissue? Like it doesn't happen in the deep tissue. Oh, that's really um, interesting. So the muscle is essentially sterile. It's just the surface. As soon as the surface ex- is exposed, um, you've got you know spores and you've got bacterial cells all around that will contaminate that surface. Fascinating. So stay with us in just a moment. We'll be asking Laura a little bit about Kelsey's first question: Why sheep meat is particularly prone to spoilage? You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking about the microbiology of meat and how science are trying to hack it to extend the shelf life of meat. 
My name is Kelsey and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our guest Laura Rood from TIA at the University of Tasmania. So Laura, why in particular are you looking at sheep meat for your research? So um, as I explained before, sheep meat has a shorter shelf life um, and the reason why, in comparison to beef, and the reason why it has a shorter shelf life is to do with the pH. Um, so sheep meat has a higher pH compared to beef, um, which then facilitates the growth of spoilage bacteria. So a more acidic environment promotes the spoilage. So a more acidic environment inhibits the growth of spoilage and slows uh, the growth. So if it's a higher pH, it's more basic. And if yes. it's a lower pH, it's more acidic. I got my chemistry stuff mixed up there for a minute. So, <laughs> I to confirm. so that's why if we're going to try and preserve the shelf life of something like that, say we've got lots of veggies, we might brine them or put them in something that's quite acidic Yes, because that'll preserve them for longer because microbes and all the funky stuff that's going to turn food bad doesn't like those acidic environments. Yes, so there's fewer bacteria that can survive and grow in those conditions. So for your experiments on sheep meat, um, where do you get your samples from and what sort of experiments are you doing to try and extend the shelf life? So we get our samples from local abattoirs um, and most of my experiments, um, I conduct shelf life trials. So we're looking at different interventions that we apply to the fresh meat that we get from the abattoir. We then vacuum pack, so cryovac the meat. We then store it in an incubator at a set temperature. Um, and then throughout the predicted shelf life, um, so my research team has a model which predict, predicts the length of the shelf life at that temperature um, with the initial microbial counts. Um, so then I use that as a guideline for when I conduct my time points. So at each time point, I will be looking at how um, many bacterial cells are on the meat surface. I'll be looking at pH. I'll be doing a sensory panel which looks at the smell and the odour of the meat. And yeah, so essentially that's how I, I've conducted a lot of my experiments so for someone like me who hasn't been in the lab since like second year of uni um and even then I didn't do very much when I was in there how do you look at the microbial things that are on the meat at each time point like do you swab it so like a sticky thing that like that you get off it and then you like culture those up and they grow um like what what kinds of things do you do to do that and how do you look at it over time so what we do is um we homogenise, which basically is just a fancy word for massage. <laughs> we massage the meat, which is in a bag with some peptone water, which is just a, a liquid. Um, and, yeah, we massage the meat and we get a, a rinsate. So what that does is just gets all of the bacteria off the meat. Um, we then use that rinsate in um, a series of cereal dilutions um, to be able to then spread plate it at a concentration which we can actually count the bacteria. So by spread plate it, is that kind of like when we grow stuff as an on an agar plate, like in science fairs? Yes. Okay, yep. Cool. So a, an agar plate. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And are you then identifying them based on how they look or are you using another method to figure out what the actual bacteria species are? So 
for um for most of my um work I've just looked at total viable count so that's all of the bacteria together um and I'm not identifying them specifically but then I do use selective agar for looking at certain bacteria which for example lactic acid bacteria I use a special type of agar that selects for that um but for my experiments where I've wanted to get into the specifics of what bacteria are involved I did um, DNA extractions from the meat rinsate and I sent them off to Ramashotti which um, does a which looks at the microbial community and we can identify the individual sequences for each bacterial cell that's in the rinsate. And does the like types of microbial bacteria that are on meat like vary quite a lot from day to day or sample to sample like would you expect that to vary and are there some that are worse than others to be on there yeah so that's a really good question um so there is variability from each meat piece Um, microbial data is very variable um and they never do what you expect or what you want them to do they're very unpredictable (laughs) classic science yes um but To begin with, the um, community is quite variable because when the meat comes from the abattoir, it's exposed to different, you know, cells. But then when we apply the cryovacking, so the vacuum packing and the temperatures, the community becomes very, very restricted um, and quite specific. Uh, so, Laura, you mentioned that you use sensory evaluation as a measurement of meat quality or perception. I'm going to be honest. Um, so, Laura and I share an office. So, when she's short of uh, sensory panelists, we often get dragged in to have to come and sniff some meat. And I have to be honest, it's not the most pleasant experience, but super interesting. So, can you explain a bit about how the sensory evaluation works and what kind of information you're trying to get from it? So um, the sensory panel consists of um, volunteers, lovely volunteers from the university. Um, And they, so we've got a um, a scale that we work from. So zero is not acceptable and eight is great, would eat. Um, And then four is the cutoff point for, okay, we're getting, we're getting spoilage. We wouldn't eat this. Um, and so, yeah, my panel comes through and assesses each piece of meat um, by the colour and the smell. Um, and so this gives me um, information as to whether there's microbial deterioration of the of the meat samples. That's really interesting. I wonder, um, do you adjust for demographic information such as like age, sex, whether or not the person eats meat, what kinds of meat they eat? Because lots of people only eat chicken, for example, and they really dislike red meat. So like they might look at red meat and go, that looks gross because look at how juicy it is. And it's like, well, I would look at red meat and think, oh, look how juicy that is. That's great. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So when I first started doing my sensory um, trials and I was getting a lot of volunteers um, coming through and there was a lot of differences in what people thought was acceptable and not acceptable. 
um, and that was a problem to, to begin with. Um, and so it was a lot of trial and error of trying to figure out, okay, well, how can I get a consistent panel? Of course, there's going to be variation, but, you know, ultimately there is a cutoff point where you're like, right, this is not where we're getting some funky smells and some gross slime on there. So, um, so what I ended up doing is refining my panel um, to microbiologists and we um, went through some training with, with that panel um, and we would, yeah, so we, we got it fine-tuned in the end but it was a bit challenging to begin with. So are you using um, indicators like humans being able to smell if the meat is off or if it looks like a funny colour? That's Those are sort of marketable indicators of whether someone, the end user at the end of this um, meat export line would be happy with the product. Um, are you looking at whether it's safe or not or do you think that humans are able to sort of judge themselves if the meat looks a bit grey and is a bit smelly, they're not going to eat it or... Is the safety line before that point of the you know the for the point system of four, or is it afterwards? So um, when we export meat, they there's a lot of quality control. So um, there is a lot of indicators that the industry use to determine safety. So they will be swabbing and testing the samples or the 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 meat sorry I shouldn't call it samples (laughs) Um, but looking at the meat um, safety so that's a different issue than the shelf life so I'm just looking I'm not looking at um, pathogens on the meat I'm purely looking at the microbial community um, and how that impacts the quality. If it's not a safety concern is is spoiled meat like still fine it's just we don't like it with our snootiness um I would not recommend eating spoiled meat (laughs) (laughs) um I think that there would still there would it still wouldn't be good for you um to eat something that that was really degraded microbially um yeah I I wouldn't recommend it Good to know. We're that's what I call science. That's what you're listening to, and we're talking about a really fascinating topic. That's about meat spoilage, which we haven't covered before on the show. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Kelsey Pickard and our expert guest Laura Rude. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. I'm Kelsey Picard, joined by my co-host Neve Chapman, and we are learning about the microbiology of meat and how it can be applied to the export meat industry. Um, so I wanted to start with asking a question about why this is all important. So currently animals are grown and slaughtered here, and then their meat is shipped overseas for sale and consumption. So why is shelf life an issue in this process? I think that the having a longer shelf life um, is great for any product, especially with a, you know, for sustainability. Um, but we, at the moment, a lot of the meat is um, shipped to different um, export markets, international export markets. Um, so the twelve weeks that we have um, for lambs, so that's eighty four days. Um, that's you know seems like a long time but for export 
sometimes the um, the distances that the shipping distances is quite quite a long time and it can exceed 84 days or be close to 84 days um, especially um, these days because the um, shipping industry is enforcing or encouraging um, a, a concept called slow steaming so this is where they're trying to reduce environmental impact by reducing emission emissions so what they do is slow the speed of their vessels so ultimately that means that these shipping times and transportation times are longer and are going to get longer um, and so that is problematic for um, the Australian sheep. So that's an interesting sort of um, problem there because these freighting companies are trying to do better by reducing their emissions by going slower but by doing that they're actually causing a bunch of sheep meat wastage and other probably other products wastage and so that's kind of negating the good that they're doing. And do you like supermarkets have an amount of time I always wonder how long my stuff has been on the supermarket shelf for because mm. like we often all of us are familiar with marking down of prices because something's getting towards the end of its shelf life but like how long typically is it there like is it weekly or do you have any idea I mean that's in left field <laughs> yeah I don't actually know too much about the domestic market um, but I am under the impression that they're quite conservative so um, I would be buying the produce that is downgraded in price because um, there's a lot of consumer pressure to have meat that looks, you know, bright and blooming and juicy and sometimes, you know, meat might look a little bit dull or in a cryovac condition it looks a little purple because of the... Um, the oxygen content and the myoglobin, um, but it's still perfectly good. But it's it's all about that it, customer it's, demand. It's all about the consumer perception. That's really interesting when we consider like the ugly fruit and veg too, and that like we've ended up with like such a narrow view of carrots because people decided at some point that orange carrots were what they wanted. And I think it's funny that you mentioned that because the dullness of that kind of like grey look to meat. Um, I particularly associate that with like a deli canter but what I've noticed in some delis is that they'll just leave the one there that looks grey um, but then they'll take something out that looks different because I think quite often people are like oh I don't want that stuff that's on top like can you take some from the bottom and they're just like leaving that one that essentially looks undesirable Yeah. Um, rather than having more meat get to the point where it starts to look un undesirable which like now that we've spoken with you I'm kind of like oh that actually makes like quite a lot of sense because we're such fickle consumers. Well, I guess it's all evolutionary you're always choosing your food that's not going to make you sick so it's probably left over from that you're and like, it's like with your sensory trials you're, you're literally getting us to sniff it and whether or not we can pick up on anything that's actually dangerous or not if it just smells bad then we don't want to eat it just from a food safety perspective. Yeah, so um, I actually conduct um, gas chromatography on um, a lot of the samples as well. So um, I'm looking at the different organic compounds which create the smells 
So, yeah, a bit more of an objective approach. <laughs> that is funny because I actually don't consider meat having like a specific smell. Like I would prefer it not to have any smell actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes I, I have had people on the panel which have rated all of their samples as a zero when it it's just um, – Not possible. It's, it's just <laughs> the meaty smell and it, because it was at the first time point when the meat's fresh, so it wasn't off. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so they definitely were an outlier and were <laughs> omitted from, from my results. <laughs> so I really am fascinated by the multidimensional approach you're taking with your research. To this. So we've got like the microbial processing in the lab where you're getting objective information. And then you've got this human-centered approach that's undoubtedly flawed, but it sounds like you've tried to get to the point where you've got the same reviewers and a really robust process, which is excellent. And then you've got this chromatography approach. Um, I just wonder, like, how transferable do you think your findings are to other meat products? Because it sounds like this would be hugely relevant to, for example, chicken or definitely like beef, even though they, beef has a longer shelf life. Do you think it is transferable or would the microbes and everything be so different that it's not? Yeah, um, so I think some of the interventions um, that I've looked at could potentially be be transferable to different products, but... Um, I'm not sure because each product has its own, has different microbial communities. So, yeah, that would have to be investigated. Yeah, it probably changes quite a lot as we spoke about earlier about the types of microbes that are there. Yeah, especially, yeah, especially between different species. I have one other like slightly different question that's just yeah. come into my brain. So does it change on the type of meat, like on the cut? Because like if you've minced meat and then you've processed that through something that's probably as best uh, close to possible as sterile as possible, but you know there's going to be some spores and stuff, and then obviously the surface area would have increased, and then chops or meat that have bone in it. Like have you looked at one specific cut of meat or lots of different types? So I have looked at different types, um, especially bone in and bone out. So there is a bit of controversy within the literature and within the industry um, as to whether bone in product has a shorter shelf life compared to boneless products um yeah so um and depending on the the cut I have found that some of them some products do spoil faster than others um yeah so we're looking into that I've currently got um a huge data set of um the microbial community which is associated with each of these products so hopefully I can get to the nitty-gritty of it that sounds so fascinating well we'll leave it there for this week folks thank you so much to my co-host kelsey thanks of course to our expert guest phd student laura rude you've been listening to that's what i call science we love bringing you big science from the small island if you enjoyed the content please get in touch with us on social media facebook instagram or twitter or like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from for now thanks and goodbye this program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. 
GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.